You're listening to Rethinking It, conversations about changing our minds. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Stephanie Kerlick, a mindset and self-care coach reminding you to be kind to yourself and to take up space in your own life. Rethinking It is all about change. Through intimate chats between just you and me, as well as honest and thought-provoking conversations with some of my favorite people, we'll explore how our behaviors and beliefs have changed over time. And as we're looking back at the moments and experiences of our lives, we'll also forgive ourselves for not knowing more or doing better. Here's the thing, we're usually just doing the very best that we can in any given moment, and everything changes, including us. Even in the moments when it seems impossible or we think we have it all figured out, We can change our thoughts, our actions, our choices, and our inner dialogue. But sometimes we need someone else to remind us that we can. This podcast is your reminder that you can continue to grow and learn and rethink it all. Welcome back to season two of the podcast. I am kicking off season two with a really interesting interview. The guest today is Ruby Warrington. Ruby is a British lifestyle writer and former features editor of the UK Sunday Times Style Supplement. She's the creator of The Numinous, an online magazine that bridges the gap between the mystical and the mainstream. If you haven't checked out The Numinous, I really recommend it. I love going to that site. She's also the co-founder of Sober Curious event series Club Soda NYC and Moon Club, an online mentoring program for spiritual activists. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband, Simon. She's also the author of two really great books, Material Girl, Mystical World, and the newly released Sober Curious, which is what we talk about in this interview. Together, Ruby and I share our relationships with alcohol, what led us to rethink these relationships. She talks about her new book, Sober Curious, what that really means, um, what FOMA is, and how you can start beginning to have sober firsts. I found this conversation to be really refreshing and interesting. It caused me to rethink a lot of things. Um, It's the first time also I've had the opportunity to uh, talk about my relationship with alcohol and how I think about alcohol. So I um, I really think you're going to like this one. It was a pleasure to talk to Ruby. I love her, both of her books, um, but Sober Curious, I have really, really enjoyed, and I will link to all of her work in the show notes. Um, I hope you enjoy kicking off season two of the podcast this way, and as always, if you are enjoying the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review it on iTunes. That is the number one way other people can find the podcast, um, and it's just a signal to me that you are enjoying these conversations. And now on to Ruby. Welcome to Rethinking It, Ruby. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. And congratulations on the book. It will be newly out when this episode is hitting the airwaves. So yeah, uh, congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. I'm really excited. As we're speaking, I'm kind of a couple of days out from launch and feeling all the feelings for sure. Yeah, and what a great topic to have as we start the new year, as I'm sure will come up through this conversation. Yes, exactly. It's a time of year when a lot of people are kind of questioning 
or setting, let's say, um, intentions for the year ahead. That's how I like to think of this time of year, rather than thinking about resolutions, which can sound a bit restrictive and punishing almost. I prefer to think of it being a time to set intentions for the things we want to cultivate and bring into our lives instead. Absolutely, me too. Um, so uh, before we dive into the book, I thought it would be helpful for the listeners if you could share a little bit of your journey from um, founding the Numinous all the way to Sober Curious. Sure. Well, the two um, chronologically kind of happened um, side by side in a way. I moved to New York from London, where I'd had a pretty successful career in, in lifestyle journalism in 2012. And this coincided with the same time in my life that I was um, considering or beginning to have the, my very first very internal, very private kind of self-inquiry around alcohol, how I was using it, the overall impact that it was having on my life, and whether it was something I even wanted to be participating in at all. Um, but like I said, it was very kind of under the radar at that time, even to myself, it's only really looking back that I can sort of pinpoint that as the time when the questioning started at the time, it was just, it was subconscious almost. Um, but that was the time that I also started to work on the numinous and my life changed dramatically. It went from kind of, you know, writing features for cool magazines in London, attending all the celebrity parties, this really kind of externally very glamorous looking, but actually quite exhausting lifestyle that I was living and, and unfulfilling for me on many levels. Um, you said you, you'd read my first book, Material Girl, Mystical World. Um, and you'll, you'll know, but I'll explain to your listeners that the numinous really came about as um, another line of self-inquiry, which is really like, what do I want to do with my life? What, what kind of work do I want to be doing that really fulfills me and lights me up? Um, I've always loved astrology and all sorts of mystical subjects, I suppose. And I wanted to create a magazine that presented them in a way that would appeal to people in a very modern um, and kind of aesthetically pleasing sort of a way. And so that was where the numinous, how the numinous came about. I began working on it, as I said, when I moved to New York. And it was through beginning to work on that platform. Um, and really, as a result of my kind of journalistic um, engagement with that, experiencing all sorts of alternative healing modalities, all sorts of alternative um, practices, magical practices for connecting to myself, connecting to other people, for making sense of my kind of personal history, what I was really here to do with my life, all of these things um, that began to shine an even harsher light on not only the, the way I was using alcohol and the impact it was having on my life, but my reasons for using alcohol as well. So simultaneously to creating the numinous, the questioning, <clears throat> the questioning, the sober curious questioning um, began to get more and more in depth and began to lead me more often than not to not use alcohol to the point where now, seven years down the line, I don't use alcohol at all and it's not part of my life. Um, which is, has by no means been an easy um, unpicking of that kind of habitual um, drinking patterns that I used to um, use, but it's got me to a place where I no longer desire alcohol because it's become something, or I see it now as something that I use to numb out from like really the fullness of my experience. Um, and I, I want to be fully present in my life now having, this is why I say it's happened simultaneously to creating the numinous, because really I see it as 
a byproduct of having experienced the kind of deep emotional spiritual healing that has happened through building this platform um, has has brought me to a place where I actually not only feel comfortable but desire to be fully present with myself at all times. Yeah, I think um, that the title of the book is so so perfect for this experience, getting sober curious, because I think it takes a lot of curiosity and it's not something I really did until probably similar to you where I was on sort of a healing path where I was really trying to get more comfortable just in my own skin and understanding my past and my motivations. Mm-hmm. And so you do have to get a bit curious, but I think for so many of us, and I, and I certainly am in this camp for so long, in terms of my relationship with alcohol, I was never curious. It was just um, expected. It was just part mm-hmm. of what you did. You mm-hmm. go to college, you go to parties, you go to Thursday happy hour, <laughs> um, sort of. And you write about this, this drinking on autopilot where you never really stop and think, why am I drinking? You know, how does this make me feel? Do I even want to do this? Do I even like the taste of alcohol? Um, it's just a way, it's just something that you do without any mindfulness. Absolutely. I mean, that's been the biggest, in a way, that's sort of the biggest revelation. And like, it's almost shocking that this has been kind of almost hidden in plain sight. You know, the fact that the majority of us regularly use a very addictive and potent mind and mood altering substance on a regular basis without ever truly questioning the impact of it on our lives. It's, it's like you say, when, we, um, a, when we're a young adult, we're kind of coming into our own, we're engaging in different social circles and we're making a life for ourselves. It's not, not to, to not drink is not really an option. It's just not even presented as an option. Not at all. Unless, unless you have a problem with alcohol or are allergic to alcohol. It's like very, um, very specific circumstances where a person would choose not to drink. Um, versus just becoming a drinker because as you said that's that's just what adults do in our society yeah so much of our our social engagement is centered around it I mean like you go to drinks with your coworkers after a hard day of work and you come home and you crack open a bottle of wine um, and it just it, it is that autopilot where how can you really know your relationship with alcohol if you're not if you're not getting curious about it so how, how did you get to that place where you could even have sort of that awareness to question, like before you picked up, you know, the cocktail, why am I doing it? Do I even want to do it? And what are the ramifications of doing it? How did you have sort of that moment where you could even step back and get curious? Well, first of all, I just want to point, just want to say, I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason we all do it on autopilot because you know what it does. In a very superficial and and um, in a very superficial way, it does help us to relax. It helps us to connect. It makes us kind of feel happier. Like alcohol has all of these properties, which are all things that we want in our lives. So I think that there's no. I just want to say that because we can often feel maybe guilty or ashamed, or like there's something wrong with us for mm-hmm. using alcohol without thinking about it. And actually, like of course we do. Right, of course. <laughs> it provides many of the things that we we would like to experience in our lives. However. It has an extremely high price in terms of the overall toxic effect on our bodies um, and the hangovers that that produces and creates and the, you know, the way it 
takes away our energy. It prevents us from getting proper sleep. It can make us depressed. Um, it's like on the flip side of all those things we want are all of these things that we really, really, really don't want. And for, as with many people, my questioning only began when the things, the, the negative impact of alcohol was beginning to become unbearable and was beginning to become harder and harder for me to ignore. And the more I aligned with my path, the more I found and discovered ways to experience those things I mentioned, relaxation, joy, transcendence, even magic, the more I found other tools to experience those things, the more this, this harsher light, like I said, was shone on, well, hold on, if I'm using alcohol to, experience, to, to relax on a Friday night, that means pretty much the whole weekend is going to be written off for me. And well, there are other things I want to do at the weekend. So mm -hmm. this equation is just not adding up for me anymore. So it was really, yeah, having, when I began to focus more on the negative side effects of drinking, um, and they began to outweigh for me any of the positives I had experienced with drinking, that that questioning got louder and louder and more persistent and harder to ignore. And uh, one thing that I found was that I was using alcohol without really knowing it, of course, as a way to hide. I was not comfortable in my own skin. And so all of those things that you just mentioned, it, you drink alcohol to have fun and to relax. And um, I am a person who relaxing is challenging for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so frequently I would hear things like, oh, just have a drink, you'll relax. Oh, you're going on a first date. You better have a couple cocktails first so you can be your real self. Mm. And so it wasn't until I really started to get comfortable and get to know myself that I could have that space to get curious, to pause and realize that I was using alcohol just to hide. It was a way yeah. to fade into the background, both literally, um, because, you know, things are fuzzy and you can't really remember. Mm. Um, and also it was just a way to not be seen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, although on the, you know, we're, we're taught that alcohol makes us more confident and more comfortable with being seen, right? There's so many strange, slippery kind of equations that don't quite add up when we really dig into them. And I think, as you rightly pointed out, you know, I'm speaking about, well, alcohol helps us relax. It makes us feel more joyful. It makes it easier to kind of like laugh. The questions then are, why is it so hard for me to relax? <laughs> mm -hmm. Why do I not feel comfortable dating in this way? Why do I not feel comfortable in these social situations? And then to address and accept, well, okay, I don't, perhaps I don't like parties that much. Perhaps it's better, better and more fulfilling for me to socialize one-on-one -on -one for brunch. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think alcohol helps us to play a role that has been prescribed to us without us realizing a lot of the time. It helps us to show up in the world as a person that is kind of ticking boxes in a, in a way that we're ticking boxes that aren't necessarily our boxes to tick, if that makes sense. Oh, it I, think totally that's, makes I think that's kind of what you were speaking about when, with the self-acceptance piece. Actually, the desire or the need and the desire to drink slowly does sort of ebb away because we don't need to cover up those parts of ourselves that were maybe unacceptable or uncool or unsociable or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And one of the things um, that I, as I was reading the book, I was so excited when I got to the part where you talk about emotional intelligence, mm. um, because I think this is an, an area that we talk about a lot. Um, and I 
um, I work at a college as an undergraduate advisor. So I work with undergraduate college students mm. and I teach a class to all new college students where the foundation is mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Wow. Um, so when I was reading that in your book, I was just so excited because so much of how we interact with others, with ourselves, with alcohol, um, really comes back to our emotional intelligence and how do we manage stress? Can we sit mm. with our feelings or do we have to numb out, as you said? Mm. Um, can we express ourselves or do we need to be a few cocktails deep to you know, relax and laugh and dance um, mm. and feel like you're yourself? And so mm. that emotional intelligence piece um, I'm really interested to hear your take on that and how you feel like that plays into this sober curiosity. Well, I guess something that I speak about in the book is how in our society, we're very quick to label certain feelings good or desirable and certain feelings bad and to be avoided at all costs. Mm -hmm. um, we use the term stress to, as a kind of umbrella term for many of those less welcome feeling states. Um, and you know, we also all know that stress can make us sick. Stress can lower our immune system. Stress can lower our libido. Like again, we don't want stress, right? And so the first sign of stress rearing its rearing its head, we'll we're, we've been trained almost to kind of like run away from it, numb it out, avoid it as quickly as possible. But actually, I think again, if we can, and it take this is the thing, it takes time and it takes commitment. And it can be very uncomfortable at times to sit with what might be the underlying causes of our stress, whether that is, you know, literally too much work on our plate. We need to ask for help or we need to tell our, our boss or our supervisor that we can't handle it. Um, whether it's relationship issues that we um, are unwilling to confront, whether it's um, a physical illness, whatever it is, it can take yeah time and commitment to actually dive into the root causes of our stress. And a lot of the time, we just don't think that we have the capacity for that. Um, but ultimately, that's the only way to really, truly deal with our stress or, or to um, move beyond the emotions that, we, that, are more, that are less comfortable or less easy to bear is to actually, as you said, sit with them and really question those emotions. Where have you come from? Why am I feeling this way? What changes might I need to make in my life, or what might I need to, you know, be brave enough to confront in my life to um, process this this once and for all? Which again is easier said than done. And I talk often, uh, you know, I mention oftentimes if you feel that you need professional, you get to a point where you need professional help, do not hesitate in getting that help for yourself. That could be one of the biggest acts of self love that you can that you can do. There's no shame in asking for help. Um, and also the importance of really finding a community um, to to address some of these things with, you know, I think that you're teaching this class at college is amazing. That sounds super progressive. I wish that had existed when I was at college. You Me know? too. It just didn't. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have studied for finals at the bar if it did. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so you just mentioned finding a community where you can talk about these things and work on sort of getting more comfortable with yourself. How do you go from being immersed in a, a community where it is just normal that you drink on a regular basis and you don't talk about your feelings and you, you know, it's just sort of about click checking those boxes, as you mentioned, to finding a place, a group of people, a single person, your journal, where you can start to unpack some of this um, and get to know yourself a little bit better? 
Well, you mentioned journaling. I think that's one fantastic way to begin to actually process some of our more complicated feelings um, and experiences. I would say that actually writing my first book um, was something that really helped me to reckon with where I was at on my path, the things that had caused me pain that I was unwilling to to feel or to acknowledge. Um, and so in a way, my, my professional life has really helped me to find that community as well. Um, so I mentioned that when I began work on The Numinous, I was, because it was my journalistic responsibility, you know, I sort of set it up so that I'd be attending healing circles and breathwork events and having hypnosis sessions and finding all of these and as a result, finding many other people who are engaged in this level of kind of emotional and spiritual self-inquiry and making a lot of connections that way. Mm. And as a result, my social life sort of naturally shifted from people I would mainly spend my downtime drinking in bars with to people I was actually spending a lot more time engaging in these healing practices or going to retreats with or these sorts of things. Um, so, you know, people, people criticize the hashtag wellness industry for being inaccessible and out of reach financially for some people. But if we think about how much money we spend on alcohol, all that money you're saving from not drinking could be invested in um, wellness practices that will equally introduce you to a community of people who are at the same place and wanting to, to dive into the same things. Um, and then I think, yeah, you mentioned as well, whether it's an individual like finding finding somebody even if it's just one person in your life that you can confide in about what you're going through is invaluable and offering that same support to someone in your life you see perhaps struggling with these issues um i i did a we host at one of our um sober curious events in new york recently we had a panel discussion featuring a trained um a ucla trained psychotherapist and he was talking about how he believes we've almost created the need for mental health professionals because of the way that we place so little importance on family and on community in our societies and the way that our societies have become so individualistic. Um, and he was talking about how we all, as a result of us just being human beings, have the ability to offer each other um, the emotional witnessing and support that we need to to process some of the more difficult experiences that we have, but we just don't really expect that from each other. And I think actually we kind of outsource a lot of those connections to alcohol. We use alcohol as a way to fake almost um, intimate connections, what feel like intimate connections with people. When really, as you said, when we're, when we're, when we're sharing what's in our heart or something super vulnerable with somebody else when we're under the influence of alcohol, it's not really the full emotional impact of that. It's not really landing in our bodies because we can't truly feel all of the emotions that are coming up along with it. So being brave enough simply to have a real heart to heart with a trusted friend sober is actually going to be an amazing first step in confronting some of the more difficult things you're experiencing in your life. Yeah, I think that that point is really important is a lot of times we are seeking community and when we're seeking community layered in with alcohol, we think we're part of a community. And this was certainly my experience, especially in college and my first post year, post college years where mm -hmm. so much of my community and my existence centered around alcohol. I thought 
I, I was feeling like, oh, I have all these friends. We go out all the time. We have so much fun. But then I was still feeling lonely all mm. the time. Mm. And I, I didn't, it wasn't until years later um, where I could really see how those were very connected, where it was, like you said, these sort of fake um, or just not, not truly authentic relationships because we were layering in you know, all of the shots that we did at happy hour. And so we felt like we were going deep and we were really connecting, but we couldn't actually remember it the next day. So how (laughs) connected were we really? Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. And when I removed the alcohol, I realized I felt lonely for a reason. I was alone Mm -hmm. Um, because Mm -hmm. none, none of that, you know, in the, the light of the day really was true or honest. And I wasn't my true or honest self. And that can be really isolating. Absolutely. I wrote um, a piece recently about my journey with this. And I described looking back on my drinking years as almost like partying in my own private padded cell. It's like I created this kind of numbing, like cotton wool ball that I kind of cloaked myself in to stop myself from feeling the discomfort, the uncomfortable things about my life. And in doing so, I'd kind of separated myself from connecting with anyone in a deep and meaningful way, which is, again, not to say that many of the friendships that were formed during those years aren't very important friendships to me still. And I didn't have some fantastic connections with people while drinking as well. But those were few and far between. And actually, the conversations I have with those people now sober are so much more intimate and impactful overall. Um, than the conversations we ever had drunk. And when you were starting to get sober curious and you were sort of reformatting your life um, so that you were going to these wellness retreats and the, you know, breathwork seminars, how did you deal with any pressures or judgments from those in your life that weren't joining you on that sober curious? Well, in a way, it was quite fortunate that this coincided with my move to New York because that really was like a radical shakeup, obviously, of my entire social circle. And very quickly, I found myself mainly socializing with people who used alcohol in a very different way, if at all. Um, and so I didn't really experience too much judgment. If anything, people were really surprised. You don't have a problem with alcohol, but wait, you only drink to have more fun. Why would you stop drinking? <laughs> was a lot of the kind of responses I got, you know, because externally, alcohol wasn't necessarily presenting as a problem in my life in the way that we think about someone having an alcohol problem, you know? Um, but I guess I, I, I actually feel very fortunate that overall people have been super respectful um, of this being my choice. But I think that's partly because I've always been very clear about this being my choice and about my relationship to alcohol and it definitely not being a judgment of anybody else's choices or how anybody else's how anybody else use, uses alcohol um but yeah there are kind of there are naturally people i spend less time with or socialize with in a different way now and i think yeah like i said that's a very that's a very natural shift in a way um but of course if you take out if you take alcohol out of your social life, your social life is going to start to look different. And that includes the people that you're socializing with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, remember several years ago, I had a close friend, we were coworkers and we most 
weekend nights and often it started to be most weeknights would go out for cocktails after work to mm-hmm. let off steam and let go of the day. Um, and there was just one day that we were like, okay, let's go to happy hour. And then we both looked at each other and we said, you know what? What if we just went and got tea and went for a walk and talked? <laughs> Love it. What well, that's that? I, I have no idea. I think we were probably just hung over. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and clearly we were both craving like real true connection. Mm. And for whatever reason in that moment, we were both look at each other and admit that. Mm. And we went and we got tea and we took a lovely walk through, you know, downtown Boston. And we talked for hours. And I remember coming home from that feeling like, I think I was just completely myself and it was easy mm. and I feel filled up and I didn't have to drink to get there. Mm. And from that moment on, our relationship completely transformed where we were going, having more of these, as you described them in the book, these sober firsts mm. in our friendship where we would go and we, you know, we would go to dinner and we would not get drinks. We would go, you know, to a concert and remember it all the next day because we weren't drink, drinking through it. Mm. And I, I'm so grateful that we had that moment where we both could be honest um, and vulnerable because that's what it felt like in that moment. Like when I was thinking that in my head, like, oh God, I don't want to go for drinks again tonight, but I better just do it. And she was thinking the same thing. And then we mm. both just admitted that we didn't want to drink. And it felt scary because I felt like she might want to go and I might lose this friendship. Mm. Or she's going to think I'm uncool or she's going to think I'm boring. She doesn't want a friend who doesn't drink. She likes to drink. So that doesn't, yeah, I love, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's a real, that's something else I've really learned in being sober curious. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, in my experience, a lot more people than I ever expected are actually I have friends who say to me often how grateful they are. I'm so happy to be seeing you tonight because I know I'm not going to have to drink. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is so interesting. I think so many more people than feel comfortable talking about it or admitting it would actually like to drink less than they do, but feel that, that like all of that pressure you just mentioned, there's so much social pressure, there's so much societal pressure to kind of be the fun one, be up for it, like not be the party killer, you know, um, and just drink anyway. But I think underneath, a lot of people um, would really relish and value the opportunity not to have to drink. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's such an interesting, our relationship with alcohol is just so interesting because it, it's not something that we ever really question. And like we've talked about, there are negative consequences. We lose time. We lose entire experiences. We're mm. sick. Mm. Um, we just don't feel right. And yet we do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it has also been my experience where, yeah, I, I rarely, if ever, drink. Um, and I thought that I was going to lose like every single person in my life. And there honestly have been some friendships that have faded away because they weren't based on anything real. Mm-hmm. Um, but the relationships that have remained have deepened. And then like you just mentioned, other people have admitted, you know, I don't really want to drink either. I don't know why I was doing that. Um, so it's just so interesting to me that we just go through the motions without ever really pausing. Yeah. And we're just doing something that oftentimes we don't even enjoy doing. Exactly. 
So why that, are we like doing you, it? Like you said, you know, often leaves us with all of this kind of, all these horrible feelings and toxins to waste time mopping up. Like we don't even need to make that mess in the first place. If right. We don't drink. Right. But, I mean, and know, it, like if it was a friend and they were in a relationship with someone and they were constantly feeling less than or numbed out or like they couldn't be themselves, we would tell our friend to leave if they exactly. could. Exactly. That's um, a really good analogy. Yes. And I think that all our, a relation when describing it as a relationship with alcohol is actually really on point because it is something that becomes so interwoven in our lives and becomes a part of our personality almost. It is like a, a cohabitation, it's like a partnership, you know? Um, and, and deciding that you no longer want to be in that relationship can be like a breakup. <laughs> it's quite difficult and daunting, although ultimately, as anyone who's been in a, in a relationship that was, whole, you know, bringing them down or wasn't good for them will know leaving is the most liberating feeling in the world. Absolutely. I mean, I, so when you were writing about sober firsts, this memory came to my mind so clear. Um, many years ago, I had just been introduced to Gabby Bernstein um, and her work, and she was teaching at Kripalu. And I signed up to go. I was so, so excited. Um, and then we got sort of an itinerary a couple weeks before, and it talked about um, that Gabby loves to have dance parties. And I freaked out because I had never danced <laughs> with people sober, ever. Mm -hmm. I thought I couldn't. Um, I had all of these stories, like people are going to make fun of me. I'm going to look like a fool. I just can't dance. And so I had said to my boyfriend, I'm just going to cancel my reservation. I'm not going to go. And he's like, you're crazy. You, you just read this book by this person. You really want to meet her. Um, you can make some new friends. Just go and just skip out on the dance party. And I went to Kripalu and opening session was great. So excited to be there. And then the lights came down and the music came on. <laughs> and I, I had already had a plan. And so I started packing up my journal and creeping out of the room. And I felt a hand grab me and pull me. And then I'm face to face with Gabby. Ah. I've never met before. And she pulls me up on the stage with her. Oh my God. <laughs> and now I'm dancing in front of 250 people that I don't know completely sober. Wow. And I, there was a moment where I was so terrified and I thought I have to get out of here. Like I have to just vanish. And then I just started dancing. And since then, I have only ever danced sober, but it was such a scary moment mm. that I could have canceled my reservation or just bailed mm -hmm. on the room. But instead, I sat with it for, you know, the two seconds where I was terrified and I thought that everyone was going to make fun of me. And then I looked around and realized no one was watching me. And <laughs> exactly. So Everyone's I could like just dance. <laughs> So great. You didn't have any choice. That's amazing. Right. And you doing that was such an incredible example to everybody else in the room, giving them permission to do the same because you can bet your life that everybody in the room was feeling some degree of that same fear. Because yeah, I talk about the, the dance, like dancing sober, you must be kidding, is probably one of our, one of the first fears that comes up when we think about having a sober social life. Like, well, that's the end of my nightclubbing days. Like, there's just no way, you know? But I share similar experiences of having reckoned with that and come face to face with it. And now, yeah, dancing sober is so much better because, again, you can really feel the music in your body. Um, 
and you can literally feel your vibration kind of rising in real time when you're when you're really dancing sober um so yeah i definitely i definitely empathize with you in that experience but likewise much prefer dancing sober now and that was such a moment such a it felt like such progress in a way it was again so liberating to discover that i could dance sober and still enjoy what had been a really pleasurable part of my life um, without needing alcohol yeah and and a lot of these sober firsts that i've experienced have been really scary in like before they've happened I, because mm. i've had all these stories about how i needed alcohol to be part of the equation mm. for it to be meaningful or enjoyable or for me to be liked and then in the moments where i've been you know either gabby's pulled me up on stage and i've had no choice or i've just gone for it when you get to the other side oftentimes in my experience i'm like well I can't even imagine if alcohol would have been part of that equation. Mm. I would have missed out on mm -hmm. actually the experience. Exactly. And then also potentially had all sorts of regrets and icky feelings afterwards as a result of just the toxin being in your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you, like, like you said, you know, our brains, we all know that future tripping causes anxiety and that it's also something our brains naturally do to try and prepare us for future catastrophic events. <laughs> so again, it's very natural to feel fear about what might happen or um, how things might go down, but it's really only confronting. I write in the book of, about our, us experiencing FOMA, being fear of missing alcohol. It's only really confronting our FOMA and showing up to these things anyway, that we prove to ourselves that those fears are often unfounded. Some of the big ones for me were like, you know, first sober wedding, first sober vacation, first sober birthday party, like all the things which I'm always associated with having drinks. Um, but showing up and doing them sober, I really was able to prove to myself through my lived experience that I didn't need alcohol. Alcohol was, pure, it was an add-on to all of those experiences. The experience could still be celebratory, um, if not more so, and joyful and connecting and all of those things without the alcohol and without the hangover. Yeah, absolutely. I really think that is such a key point is that alcohol isn't the magic sort of the secret sauce to having a good life. Mm. Um, and, but, but we have experienced so much conditioning around the fact that it is mm -hmm. that you can't go to a wedding and not drink. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? And um, even, even things like going on that first date, like I mentioned, like mm -hmm. I, before my first date with my boyfriend, we've been dating now for nearly nine years. Um, but before the first date, I, my coworker said, you better go early and have a couple of cocktails so that you are yourself when he shows up. Like, uh, we think we wow. can't be ourselves without it. But the thing is like, we've already, we're, we're not ourselves when we drink. That's right. the point. We're actually using it to help us play a role Mm -hmm. in the dating situation, a role of somebody who's kind of like sexy and cool and flirty and all of these things. And maybe those things don't naturally come to us naturally, unless we're with someone that we really, really connect with. And I think with the sober dating piece, because again, that's something that comes up so much is one of the situations that people are most fearful about not drinking in. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's going to really narrow down the number of people you actually have a genuine connection with, let alone want to sleep with or have a relationship with, you know? Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. 
Yeah, I mean, and when I look back on the early stages of my relationship, I, so much of it was centered around alcohol and mm. a fair amount of it. Um, that when I started to wean back the alcohol, I really was fearful that my relationship was going to end because was he going to like me if I wasn't mm. the fun girl and relaxed and um, in in my natural state of Stephanie-ness, was he still <laughs> going to like me? Yeah. Because like we've mentioned, it it is a way that we are playing this role and it's very easy to play the role when you just have a couple of cocktails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I write about, I had the same experience in my relationship as well. Like we'd always had so much fun drinking together. And when I decided to no longer drink, um, it was this moment of reckoning in our relationship. Of like, are we still going to enjoy the same stuff? Are we still going to have lots to talk about? Like, and hey, guess what? Yay. A, you don't have a 20 year marriage with somebody and there not be like a really genuine connection there. So Luckily for us, um, it just actually helped to deepen our connection and the level of emotional intimacy that we have together. My husband now also is sober curious. Um, and so, yeah, now we have, we actually probably laugh, I would say, more together. And it feels even more fun because when we really have one of those sort of joyful, connective moments together, it's like it has so much resonance. It, the the feeling of that lasts for days afterwards. And it really helps, I think, to sustain the bond between us. Yeah, that's been my experience too, because you actually are in your life and in your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, in all of the times where alcohol was in the mix, I often felt like I was sort of floating outside of my life. Like I couldn't really see it quite clearly and I couldn't feel it, but it was just happening around me as it, like this mist. And mm-hmm. I would try and like, put it back together and recreate the story, but I never really could. And I never felt like I was there. So Mm -hmm. actually being present in a conversation in a moment, even if it's a terrible moment and you are heartbroken or sad or angry or stressed, still there's just so much power of actually being there in the moment. Yeah, 100%. And so much texture as well. One thing that I really was worried about or scared about was that stopping drinking would mean that life became boring and monotonous because I was used to kind of having these extreme highs and lows as a result of drinking and then as a result of the hangovers. And actually what I've realized is that um, there's just so much more texture to life, if that makes sense. Like rather than it being this kind of black and white drunk or sober or hungover, it was kind of like now there's all of the different experiences in between and it's just so much richer as a result. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. That's exactly how I would describe it. Like you can actually see and feel it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so now, like you mentioned, I, I am not someone that really drinks alcohol. Um, and I really thought that was going to be such a huge um, challenge for me. Um, and as I accumulated more and more of those sober first, it became easier and easier. And now mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Um, whereas I still will get questions sometimes like, oh, don't you want to drink? Or why don't you just relax a little? Um, <laughs> but the more I experience, the more I want to experience, if that makes right. sense. Yes, 100%. I agree. It's like, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about the term, how we use the term wasted, like getting wasted. 
mm-hmm. and how actually when we really unpick that it's like well yeah we're wasting I kind of feel like I was wasting time a lot of mm-hmm. the time when I was drinking I feel like time has kind of expanded my experience has expanded exponentially since not drinking and now that I've had that kind of experience of my full life and all of my feelings it feels like I would just be shortchanging myself by drinking because I'd be taking away from that full rich experience. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And uh, when I look back on so many moments, one, I can't remember them all totally, Mm. completely, but I also think like, like I, I went to this great concert or I had this great vacation, but I can't recreate it. I can't, I have pictures but I can't, mm. I, I didn't really experience. So yeah, it kind of was wasted. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so as you are on your sober curious path, clearly this is something you're very passionate about. You just wrote a book about it. How do you make sure that you, like you mentioned earlier, are staying on your path and being clear that this is your path without sort of tra- venturing towards judging or preaching? like? And because I feel like oftentimes when we, when we feel like we found the thing that really helps us, or it could be eating more kale or drinking a green juice or going to yoga, we want to tell everyone about it because we found the thing. Yes. And telling everyone to do the thing makes them not want to do the thing. Or it can automatically come across as a judgment of the thing that they're doing instead. And I think it's just, it's actually really hard to avoid that. Um, particularly I've kind of, I, they describe that as the evangelical phase, like in recovery circles, that phase when you're just like, I feel so amazing. Oh my God. Like the color has been turned on in my life. I need to tell everyone about this. And I think I've been through the angelical phase and come out the other side. Um, and I think that one, number one, it's very, like you said, it's very natural when we discover that something that really feels great, um, that we want to share that with people that we care about and that we love. So Another really, good, another really important thing that I've um, kind of come to think about is the idea of like not judging my judgment. Like it's actually quite normal to have judgments about other people's behaviors. That's sort of part of being a human and part of having an ego and all of that stuff. And so if I am ever judgmental privately, because I, I would never... I would never speak a judgment about someone else's drinking out loud. But if internally I find myself thinking, mm, so-and-so really probably is drinking too much, I'll be kind to myself about that, you know, and like not judge myself for having that judgment because I just, that's, that's not helpful either. Um, and I'll also look at when they, if those judgments come up, like what part of myself am I still judging? Is there still part of me that thinks it's cool to drink or is there still part of me that's not quite um I don't know that's not quite healed around this you know and just again showing some compassion for those parts of myself that I'm usually judging if I'm judging other people um but I think yeah the key piece is to not literally not go around saying to people you know you really shouldn't be doing that or drinking that's going to be shaving years off your life or and just really um yeah making it very much about this is my choice and even if necessary stating that as well this is all about me you guys you do whatever you guys want to do it's great this is just about me and how how I feel about alcohol you know yeah I think that's really important I also think the reminder that yeah judging is actually normal Mm -hmm. um and yes you don't want to outwardly judge 
people to their face. But if you do have that thought, um, I think that's so powerful what you just said about questioning, like, how am I still judging myself, especially Mm -hmm. because there is, can be a lot of judgment and shame around our relationship with alcohol and the decisions Mm -hmm. we might've made when we were drinking. Mm -hmm. And so I think that could be a really powerful exercise of when you're feeling like you're judging someone else, just getting a little curious with yourself Mm -hmm. and seeing like, is it triggering something? Like, do I still feel ashamed for that thing that I said when I was drinking or how I behaved? Um, Because that, that oftentimes might be the root of it. Or do I still see it as somehow weak to be succumbing to alcohol? Mm -hmm. You know, am I, is there still part of me that's, um, that's not really got a hand as much of a handle on this as I would like. And again, just like I said, coming back to acknowledge that, show some compassion to that part of yourself and then move on. <laughs> yeah. The moving on is, is moving the key on. part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and also just reminding yourself that this is your choice and your path. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone else's choice and someone else's path, it's not good or bad. It's just their choice. Exactly. And I often remind myself, you know what, my, I can own, I only know how it feels to live in my body. Like there's no possible way for me to know how it, it actually feels to live in somebody else's body. Um, and so I can't ever really judge anyone else's relationship with alcohol because I don't know how alcohol is impacting them. All I know is that for me personally, um, it was, it was causing me a lot of pain and that's why I no longer use it. And so yeah, I, I can't possibly say what the case is for anybody else. I love that. I, and I think that is such an easy way to not get into that sort of preachy or, or judging way because just reminding yourself that my relationship with alcohol is mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and their relationship with alcohol, unless it's directly you know impacting my existence, like it's, you know, a, mm. a dear loved one mm. you know, is just your coworker. Their relationship with alcohol is not actually your business. Exactly. Um, with the caveat, if you see someone in your life who is very clearly a, becoming a danger to themselves or others, or as a result of their drink, drinking, then there are professional organizations that you can be in contact with to help you find ways to address that. So yes. that's also a really important thing to to put into this part of the conversation. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And also, it like you just said, there are professionals that can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I often think sometimes we want to, you know, be the healer, um, and we want to be able to help that person through a really challenging moment. And we're not always the best person. We can support them and encourage mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Um, and hold them, but unless we are a professional. Um, it's not actually our job. Um, our job is to just support them and, and show up for them. Exactly. And the good news is that the clarity you will have from not drinking will help you to be able to use your own judgment about when an intervention may be necessary or when to just let this person make their own discoveries in their own time. Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder in this conversation. Hmm. Um, I love to end the podcast with just a few. Um, I they're more medium fire questions because they're they're a little bit more on the deeper side. Um, but I just like to see the commonalities in all of our experiences. Okay. Um, 
So what is something that consistently makes you smile, where you could be having a stressful moment, an overwhelmed moment, and you just see or think or feel something and you just can't help but smile? The first thing that came to mind was my cat. <laughs> I have an amazing ginger tomcat called Larry, and he's just so beautiful. Like, And honestly, just looking at him and being reminded in a way that he's just happy to just be like he's just happy just being him in the moment like stretching or sleeping or whatever it really helps me to remember to take a breath and just come into the present moment and just be <laughs> so mm -hmm. my cat and I guess this is part of the reason we have pets right um, absolutely they are, they are companions in more ways than one yes I would say my dog also consistently makes me smile yeah <laughs> Um, is there a book that you have read recently that you absolutely love and you think we all should read? I love reading novels. Um, I read actually very little kind of in the way of self-help, I guess, because it's so much part of my work and mm -hmm. also what I do personally. Like, I love to read novels also as a way of kind of healthy escape. You know, I read novels in the evening in the way that I used to drink to kind of forget about my problems. <laughs> but um so the one I read recently uh, was called The Power by Naomi Oldham, and it came out last summer, and it's kind of a sci-fi theme, but set in present day, I guess. Um, and it's the story of how women all around the world, teenage women who then awaken this in older women, realize or discover that they have the power to emit lightning bolts out of their fingers out of their bodies um, and this immediately um, gives women the kind of physical advantage over men and flips the gender power dynamic it's really really beautifully written um, and very engrossing story that I'm recommending to people at the moment yeah that sounds really interesting and I um, like you so much of my world is centered around the wellness areas so in my spare time I do like to try and escape through fiction so I think I'm going to, to pick that one up it's great <laughs> um, if you could travel back in time and look and talk to the 15 year old version of Ruby what would you say to her oh, um, I'd let her know that she's really smart and that she doesn't need to dumb down to be cool and popular I think um, I, you know, I was kind of a swat at school and got straight A grades and part of me thought that that wasn't very cool. And I think, yeah, I probably began drinking and using marijuana at that stage of my life as a way to almost dumb down my intelligence, if that makes sense. Um, and kind of like fit in with what everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think I would probably encourage her to really own it a bit more <laughs> mm -hmm. and to be her kind of like geeky nerdy self unapologetically I love it um and the name of this podcast is rethinking it and it's all about changing our minds about ourselves things that we never thought would change and then actually do um so what is something about yourself that you thought couldn't change or wouldn't change and then it did change well, I mean, this is perfect for Sober Curious because really my relationship with alcohol, I really thought that I was a committed social drinker that I would never be able to, that I would never get to a point in my life where I could take or leave alcohol or didn't crave it on some level. Um, and yeah, through getting Sober Curious, I've completely flipped that script. Um, it's completely the other way around now. Like I have no desire for alcohol. 
So if there's an opportunity presents itself to drink, I almost had to talk myself into it. <laughs> and I never thought that would be me. I never thought I'd be the person who was like, yeah, I can take or leave it. Yeah, alcohol, whatever. And that's now who I am. So yeah, being so curious. I love it. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I loved the book. Um, I think it's just such a topic that we don't really talk about in this way um, because it's really addressing just our our general relationship with alcohol, not necessarily being on the extreme of our relationship with alcohol, but just our everyday relationship with it. Um, and so it's also an area that I've never really had the opportunity to talk about or reflect on. Um, so I'm so grateful that you uh, had this conversation with me. Well, thanks for having me. It was really great to hear some of your stories about it too. Every time I have a conversation like this with someone who wants to really go there and be open about it, I learn something new or feel more kind of um, supported on my own path with it. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And I think it speaks to what we mentioned earlier that so much, so many of us want to have these conversations. Um, and given the opportunity, which hopefully this podcast will give the opportunity to many more people, and your book certainly will, um, so that they can just pause and either get curious in their journal or with their closest friend. Um, and so congratulations on the book. And I know that it's really going to spark a lot of curiosity out there. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Rethinking It. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe, if you wouldn't mind rating it or leaving a short review. It's the number one way that other people can find the podcast. So if you're finding value in it, along with sharing it with your friends and family, strangers in line at the grocery store, um, it would be really great if you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 